Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, Premier David Eby. Get used to the name. The coronation is almost complete as NDP brass dump Anjali Apadurai after an investigation and covers a mountain of evidence against the environmental activist. Plus, Headley frontman Jacob Hogard is sentenced to five years in prison for sexual assault. We look at why there are so very few convictions as victims deal with a lifetime of emotional and physical consequences. And the free ride is over. Netflix announces its crackdown on password sharing. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Our next guest has been following the NDP leadership race uh, closely and has been very busy since the BC NDP's chief electoral officer called for the party to disqualify Anjali Upadurai from the leadership campaign, clearing the way for David Eby to be the next premier. He will be declared the winner tomorrow at 9.30 a.m. Joining me now to make sense of what has transpired today is Rob Shaw, who covers BC politics for Czech News and writes for Glacier Media. Rob, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, the last 24 hours, how would you describe it? Uh, gong show, I think, might be the, uh, the term to use. <laughs> this is the end of a very, very messy, self-inflicted um, leadership race in which the only other candidate against David Eby has now been disqualified, and he, tomorrow morning, will be named officially the BC NDP leader in a bit of a controversial and somewhat tainted process. He's not actually premier yet. He doesn't get sworn into that official position for the next couple of weeks. But um, I think the scene today at the legislature that we're expecting and was playing out in front of us is David Eby getting a standing ovation, appearing virtually in front of the NDP caucus inside the building, and Anjali Apatarai, his disqualified rival, holding a press conference outside of it, rallying supporters saying, look at those slow, power-hungry, uh, undemocratic New Democrats in there who are tilting the race to David Eby. So quite a quite a, um, a different series of visuals than I think the NDP would, would prefer to have on, on replacing John Horgan. Does this do any um, long-lasting damage to Mr. Eby and the NDP, what's transpired over the last uh, couple of weeks? It's a pretty good question, and I think, you know... I think there's a good possibility that it doesn't. And if you want to look for precedent in this, you can go back to look at the quick win scandal that occurred in the B.C. Liberal government around the kind of 2012-ish period where it was a huge deal here internally, a lot of kind of machinations and party implosions and whatnot. And then Christy Clark held an election in 2013 and dominated. And I think that's because what, what happens when we focus more on an actual election, and we don't know when the next election will be, in a year or two years, people get more worried about issues that matter to them, pocketbook issues. And so EB's opportunity here is, yes, he's coming in amid scandal, and yes, this is a messy situation, but if he was to offer the public ideas about health care, big swings on crime, you know, he never even unveiled his platform in this race. We have no idea what he's running for. If he comes up with a vision here in his first little bit as premier and he can excite people around it, but he certainly didn't excite the NDP membership around it, then people will likely forget this and, and move on to those big issues. So it's a, but it adds, it adds a tiny bit of flavor, a spice in the stew uh, that alters the flavor of the, of the EB premiership uh, over time, that it wasn't started off poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it goes from here is kind of up to him. Uh, in regards to, it, just practically speaking, he won't have a chance to introduce legislation until next spring 
to bring about some of these changes you're talking about potentially? No, you know, practically he's in a bit of a, between a rock and a hard place because he's going to come in uh, with two, maybe two weeks left in the session, depending on when he actually gets sworn in as premier. Does he bring in a new cabinet and close the session with brand new cabinet portfolios? Does he leave the old cabinet in place, finish the session? Does he adjourn the session early? Uh, without passing all the bills and swear in a new cabinet. Those are practical issues. And then the budget, which is due in February, is in the final processes of being done. So the question is going to be, can he still influence that and make major changes to spending to line up with whatever his priorities are? And again, we don't know what his priorities are because he never tabled those in the race. So he's going to have to tell people <laughs> what they are and then influence the budget. And then it's likely not enough time to have any legislation ready for the spring unless you're really, really, really rushing it. He's sort of got this weird situation where he's going to be premier carrying a lot of the NDP baggage from John Horgan on major files the public's upset about, but unable to execute sort of major reforms and maybe the way he wants. And uh, that'll be the dynamic of his first uh, few months in office. How much damage is caused by this uh, battle with uh, these environmentalists? Uh, the NDP has always been a coalition with three sort of key pillars, uh, social justice, mm-hmm. uh, labor, uh, and in the environmental movement. Uh, how much damage is there internally to the party moving forward? Well, I think this is more of a continued break than a new break. And we saw the environmental movement lose a lot of taste for the NDP in the in the last election in 2020, the snap election, because the NDP hadn't successfully you know, managed to oppose uh, the, um, the Kinder Morgan turned BC gov- or, uh, federal government pipeline, hadn't managed to stop that. It was embroiled in the coastal gas link pipeline fight with uh, the Wet'suwet'en trying to push that forward. It's approved LNG, it's approved Site C. The environmental movement was not behind the NDP in 2020, and the NDP still won a historic majority. So the NDP doesn't owe that movement anything, and the, and the feeling inside the party is we're fine kind of without them. Uh, we've got Metro Vancouver suburban urban voters, middle center voters, which is a question, I guess, um, for the future of the party, but that's that's how they feel. The real problem in this comes from the environmental um organizations signing up a lot of members for a paderai. Some of them aren't properly signed up, but they are in many of the different ridings that the NDP hold, what we call constituency associations, the riding associations. And those are the people who get to nominate and coordinate the nominations of the next candidates. Basically, what that means is a bunch of paderai supporters now have a lot of people in powerful positions in ridings to put their own folks in his candidates if they wanted. And now that would mean David Eby would have a tough fight within his party to get his own people that he wants to run to run with him. The question is, will the Apatari crew continue this rebellion for a year or two years quietly behind the scenes, or will they just sort of give up and go away? It depends on how angry they are, I guess. And uh, the worst case scenario is they, they lose what we've been calling the hostile takeover of the NDP, but they start a guerrilla warfare campaign in the individual ridings that make life uncomfortable for incumbent MLAs and cabinet ministers and, and David Eby as we get to the next election. Do you think we'll have an election next spring? I know it's a tough question to answer, uh, especially here in, in October, uh, but, or do you think he'll wait uh, simply because the economy is uh, supposedly heading into a recession? Does he wait a year or two, or does he, um, does he go in spring? I don't think he goes in the spring. I think... 
the economy, interest rates, inflation, the and what we saw in the municipal election, a, a kind of grumpy electorate that's not not afraid of change and not afraid to push out incumbents and try something new on some big issues like crime. I don't see that spring election, and Eby's kind of said in the past he doesn't want to do it, but all premiers say that until they do it. But I, I think it would be a huge risk to do it in the spring with the electorate and the mood that it's in. The fall of next year, maybe, that might still be on the table. And then after that, you're basically into the regularly scheduled election year, and there's not a lot of point doing it early. So, um, you know, I think this time next year, probably a month earlier, the end of summer, it'll be a lot of chatter about whether he should go. And we might be in a different position uh, then. But I, I, I just can't see. I think the risk is too high for them to do it in the spring. Well, interesting times ahead uh, for BC politics, my friend. And I appreciate uh, your time and your coverage as well. Thank you so much, Rob. Okay, take care. Well, folks, I've got some bad news for you. Netflix will crack down on password sharing next year. Netflix executives this week detailed their plans to crack down on users sharing their accounts on the streaming service, which is expected to arrive in early 2023. Joining me on to talk about this crackdown is Andy Barrar, technology and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Good afternoon, Andy. Hi, Jazz. Hi. This is bad news for a lot of folks. How big of a problem is it, the, the password sharing? Uh, it is a big problem. At least that's what Netflix uh, thinks because they've allowed, they've known that we've been sharing passwords for a long time, but they allowed it because each quarter they were still gaining subscribers. But earlier this year, they said at the time they had about 222 million paying subscribers, and they estimated that there was at least 100 million households that were accessing the service without paying, essentially password sharing. So they could have, that's basically half of their current user base, um, they could have increased if they got rid of this password sharing. And now they're finally going to do it. They did some trials in Latin America about this, Jazz, Mm -hmm. to see if people were going to pay. It was about $3 extra for each additional account. Uh, It looks like it worked because now they're going to be rolling it out into other areas, including Canada. Let's just say, um, you know, I had, say, a son who was in university. And I said, oh, here's the family password. You use it in your dorm room. So how do they know that uh, I'm sharing my password with somebody that is, let's say, going to SFU or UBC and watching a dorm? It all comes down to the IP address. So what they're going to do is they're going to look at the main account, your account, Mm -hmm. and they're going to know what your IP address is. And then they're going to use that information to base that if other accounts are being used. Because if you, for for example, hypothetically speaking, of course, Jazz, Mm -hmm. if you were watching (laughs) Netflix at home, while, say, your son in university was also watching Netflix at the same time in his dorm room, you can tell right there because there's two IP addresses that are accessing it at the same time. They can't do it through just geolocation because you could be on vacation. You could be traveling, watching Netflix on your mobile device. So they're doing it based on the IP, and they're going to allow to for users to create sub-accounts. So you'll be able to create a sub-account Hypothetically, of course, for your son, if he was uh, in a dorm room and then pay extra on top of that. But they haven't mentioned what that payment is going to be. But I think in Canada, it'll probably be about five dollars per person. That's what I'm estimating. So is this desire, this this uh, push for more revenue? Ultimately, that's what it it's going to be. They seem to be making decent dollars now. I know they spend a lot on on, on content creation, uh, but is it that 
uh, in, in regards to the finances, is it that bad for them that they have to go after um, password sharing? Well, there is a lot of competition, as you know, in the streaming services. When, when your competitors are Disney, Apple, and Amazon, you know that you have something to worry about. And their, their subscriber base has been increasing. The interesting thing about passwords, and a lot of families are doing this, is they will negotiate. They'll barter. They'll say, I'll give you the Disney password for the Netflix password. And so all of that is about to come to end. So this Christmas, when the families get together, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, rum and eggnog and some awkward conversations about who's paying who for Netflix uh, moving forward. But they are going to allow you to migrate your information onto separate accounts right now. They're trying to get people ready for it. But the question is, will they receive backlash? Because not only are you going to now going to see commercials on Netflix for their new different plans that they're going to have an ad-supported model, but you could also now have pass- password sharing is going to be gone. So we'll see how people react in the new year with this um, crackdown on password sharing. Oh, what, what, what is going on? What is going on here, Andy? Now, who is so rude to break into my interview with Andy? Uh, someone is crashing our interview. Is that you, John? Jazz, this is unacceptable. Unacceptable, gentlemen. Aren't we suffering? Isn't inflation already intolerable? Are we not crying every time we go to the gas and filling up our tanks? Like, are we not shedding silent tears when we buy eggs at the grocery store? Now you're telling me they're trying to take away the one thing that keeps me sane in this crazy world. My daily sessions of watching The Office. Yes. Now, I admit, I admit, the account that I use may or may not be mine. There's no way to tell. These faceless corporations continue to milk us dry, Jazz. They think of us as their piggy bank, squeezing every penny until we've got nothing left. This is injustice, my friends. Well, John, I've got to ask you. I'm going to assume uh, you've been sharing passwords for a while. Look, the... I, I, I can't confirm or deny these wild allegations, Jazz, but <laughs> what I can tell you is that of all the things that are charged monthly out of my credit card, uh, Netflix seems to be off the list somehow. So I'll, I'll just leave it that way. <laughs> I see our producer, Stephen Chang, also smiling. Stephen, <laughs> I want... <laughs> And giggling. Andy, these people, they just never listen. Okay. This is what I put up with every day, Andy, I'm telling yeah. you. <laughs> See, they're younger. See, I'm on the other side of the fence. I'm paying for my parents, and I don't have it in my heart to tell my mom and dad, you need to start paying for your own Netflix. You know, that's like, I'm just going broke because they I raised love my you, Andy. They, they love you. you. It's the least you can do. All right, listen, Stephen, you've got a smile on your face. Now, be absolutely honest. Are you paying for your Netflix? No, why would I pay for my own Netflix? That's ridiculous. Really? I already pay for Disney Plus. What more do I need to pay for? Sharing is caring. And anyone's moms <laughs> teach that jazz? No, I so, don't think so. So, without ratting somebody out can you sort of give me a sense of who is you're watching netflix for sure whose uh password are you using well you know what jazz i'm an honest filipino boy so i'm just gonna share up say it i use my girlfriend's netflix i'm on my brother's amazon prime and uh i pay for disney plus and i share that with them so so i'm not a criminal (laughs) 
So you're paying for one service, but you're getting uh, the, the you're, you're actually watching three. It's it, it's a group effort. It's a team effort. <laughs> and like, like I br- said, Jazz, it's a barter. People are bartering passwords. This is a common thing. Oh my god! I I knew people were sharing, but I didn't know it to this extent. When uh, Stevens has mentioned here, so you're paying for one. You're using your brother's Amazon and uh, your your girlfriend uh, with the Netflix. Wow. Now, now, John, uh, same sort of thing. You have friends who are, who are sharing passwords as well. Yeah, that's right. It's a community-based effort. You know, you give and you take. <laughs> this is how this is how democracy works, Jazz. Preach. When people come together and you start sharing, you build communities. <laughs> this is the land that my parents immigrated to. This is the future I want my kids to be a part of. Tell Don't them. tell me what I can or cannot do, <laughs> faceless Netflix corporation. Folks, you're listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Do you share passwords? Give me a call on the open line. Let's go to the open lines. Let's go to uh, Baljeet in South Surrey. Hi, Baljeet. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing very well. What's on your mind, sir? Um, yeah, I don't share my passwords. I, I paid my own account, and uh, no one outside of my family is getting my passwords. And do you have kids that sort of that uh, have left home or university age or anything like that? No. Yeah, they, they have a home still. So we do we do the family account. Yeah. So you know, I do Spotify, whatever, and so we just have our own account within. You pay a little bit extra. Yeah. Which I think is fair. Do, do it feels you feel to share? What do you think about the um, the crackdown from Netflix? Do you think it's the right thing to do for them? I think so. I mean, in terms of, uh, I think just in terms of uh, being fair. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, maybe they'll keep prices a bit lower. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeet, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, let's go to uh, Barb in Cloverdale. Hi, Barb. Hi, Jazz. Hi. Of course. Who? I want to see. See, still, Jeet is still sharing, though. With his family, yes. With the immediate families. Yeah. With his family. But, so it's, we have an agreement. I have adult children. One still lives at home, and one is at university. And so... We had to have the family account because they don't want anybody messing up their viewing history or <laughs> getting, right? Yes. I share with my mom and dad, and I tell you my suggested viewing on Netflix is not what I would want to watch. Um, but we share, if it's Netflix, Disney, Prime, uh, Crunchyroll, but I don't pay for all of it. So, so you... are we sharing streaming services? Within the family, yes. I'm not giving it out to, like, you know, my best friend who lives down the block. It's just, it's all within the family. Ah, okay. Um, in regards to streaming itself, how much of streaming is part of your life now? Me personally? Yeah. Um, I'm still a pretty avid cable watcher, like like regular um, TV. TV, news, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I am probably save my husband watching soccer. Um, I'm probably the only one in the in the family that um, watches regular TV. So I would say, for me personally, um, my viewing, I would say it's maybe twenty five percent. Wow. But the kids, the kids, hundred percent. Wow. Thanks. Percent streaming. Thanks for your call, Barbie. And that's that's. Uh, uh, I think just part of of uh, where the broadcasting and TV industry is headed. If you think about Thursday night football now is available on Amazon, uh, MLS um, soccer uh, is available. I think is going to be available on Apple Plus, and I'm sure others would join. Uh, there's so many, even Global News is now available on Amazon uh, as well. Uh, let's go to Josh and Mission. Hi, Josh. Hey, 
Hey, yeah, I think it's kind of a funny approach to crack down on the password sharing, but then add uh, add in the ad feature because uh, they're getting a lot of free views on their ads from all the people sharing passwords. So you think that they'd almost want to double down and encourage it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's why I think uh, you've got that uh, that ad tier that is coming. But I, my, my argument is if you're already paying for streaming, you pay that extra because you don't want to see advertising. Uh, so, I, you know, I would be a bit hesitant to... Uh, uh, to, to go in that direction. But uh, I think there'll be lots of folks, you know, if it's going to be cheaper and the money is tight, uh, I can see it uh, I can see it being popular. Let's go to, is it Josh? Oh, no, we lost a caller there. Let me go to uh, Andy for a second. Andy, w- one of our callers there said, uh, look, they watch about 25% of their viewing is traditional uh, television. I mean, that's where all this is all headed at the end of the day, isn't it? That we are sort of reimagining what broadcasting is. Jazz, we've almost come full circle, you know, where where, where now you're seeing ads inside of a streaming platform. So, you know, when you look at the price of what you pay, it's very expensive to have a Netflix account, a Disney Plus account, say an Apple account. It it gets expensive. And I have to say, you know, cable television is looking pretty good these days in terms of the value that you get. So we certainly have come full circle with uh, streaming. Yeah, let me talk to my uh, other two guests who are still there when they, they jumped in. John, uh, any mm-hmm. ch- chance you're going to be changing your viewing habits or sharing habits in regards to passwords? Or do you think that somehow people will find another way to get around uh, what Netflix is uh, hoping to do? Uh, if I could, Jazz, I would share even more. I would share harder <laughs> until the days of that is long gone. I, I would honestly do it that way because listening to Barb, the caller you took there, yeah. she mentions, you know, she watches cable TV. Well, I have cable TV at home too. How come when I have my friends over here and we're all watching Sunday night football, none of them are paying me, Jazz? None of them are paying. <laughs> hey, they're in my house. They're sitting on my couch. They're watching my cable television. But there's no additional fee. We can all share cable TV, but we can't share Netflix. Yeah, man. See, like this is what I don't get: the inconsistencies. Either make a global universal rule, or just leave me alone and let me watch The Office, please. That's all I want. I still think people work around the system somehow. I don't know how it is, but they'll find a way. Stephen, uh, you're sharing with family, your girlfriend. It's going to stay this way, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, two things, Jazz. First of all, please don't be such a narc. And B, <laughs> you know what? Sharing streaming platforms is my way of sharing. Of showing how much I love and you know how much I love and appreciate someone in my life so I cannot disclose how many people I've shared my Disney Plus account to but you know what it's it's like it's just sharing love with all the people <laughs> I care about in my life by <laughs> sharing accounts and vice versa so there you, there you go. go well Stephen uh, Jang uh, John Jang and Andy Burrow thank you so much for your time today my friends oh thanks <laughs> thank awesome. you Jazz and thank you to Freedom <laughs> thank you amen oh there you go that's Andy Rar, technology and digital lifestyle expert at Handy Andy Media John Jang our show contributor who crashed this interview and another gentleman who crashed the interview of course Stephen Chang our producer they raised some good points I think it's going to be tough to, to clamp down to the point where uh, everybody is paying I think it's going to be difficult David Eby, we officially declared the leader of the B.C. New Democratic Party tomorrow. We are told uh, somewhere around 9.30 tomorrow morning, uh, the chief electoral officer for the party, Elizabeth Cull, uh, has made that decision. Of course, Anjali Apadurai, the other candidate, uh, has been disqualified as of last night. Now, Ms. Apadurai did say that she would speak to the media today uh, on the lawn of the legislature at 2 p.m., 
Uh, it is now just uh, 4.37. I understand she was delayed uh, for a flight to, um, a Helljet flight to uh, Victoria. It is now 4.37. She has still not arrived uh, in Victoria. Joining me now is Les Lane, contributor for the Victoria Times columnist. He's uh, been working around the legislature hallways for well past, well, 30 years or so, a veteran reporter. Uh, he joins us now to talk a little bit what's, about what's transpired over the last 24 to 48 hours. Les, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Taz. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, so walk me through. Where are you? Are you at, on, the, on the lawn of the legislature right now? I just dashed up uh, the stairs a minute ago, and uh, we're just, uh, I don't know what the story is. It could be fog or weather or ferries. I've heard all kinds of conflicting reports. Anyway, she's uh, a bit late. She hasn't showed up, up yet for um, probably weather-related reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was some effort to mount a little bit of a show of force for this appearance, I have no idea what she's going to say, but the indications are she's going to fight on in some fashion. It would have been nice to have a, a big crowd of angry, upset supporters, but she's got maybe, I don't know, maybe 40 people out there, some of them just curious bystanders. And there's not really much going on. There are a lot of people banging drums and singing, but um, the kind of support that you might expect to see at an appearance like this just isn't there yet. And, and I guess that hinges, or just depends on what she's going to come up with when she does arrive. As an observer, what do you make of the last 24 to 48 hours in regards to what's transpired at the NDP leadership race? It's been um, a very tense and bitter experience for this party. Um, parties. I think just about universally have some kind of trouble with their um, leadership runs or their leadership contest. There's always something that goes sideways. That's kind of institutionalized now. But this one um, almost ran completely off the rails. And I think uh, I, everybody knows the story by now, but from as of about 10 o'clock last night, uh, what we're trying to find out now is how they're going to deal with this thing. And it looks like it's going to be a very big job. There's an extraordinary amount of uh, frustration and bitterness going on here. It was manifested mostly in Premier Horgan's appearance a few hours ago. He did a media scrum. Obviously, he had to say something about the leadership race and the appoint, direct appointment of the EB and the disqualification, disqualification of Apparati. And he um, blew his—he kind of blew his stack there a little bit in the scrum. He had a few pointed remarks early on about. Um, he said the thing, beca- this whole thing became a lot more public than was expected. And then he said, I'm sure the apparatus com- campaign is fine with that because it strikes me that's what their objective was from the beginning. And he said explicitly that uh, the Green, the former Greens who were alleged to have just signed on to pump the vote for apparatus and the NDP, he said they're trying to accomplish by stealth what they couldn't accomplish at the ballot box. Uh, this isn't how anybody wanted this to roll at all. Um, and then he blew up, got very angry. He, he was extolling the virtues of the executive team that made that decision last night. Somebody asked him, well, why aren't their names made public? And he said they're being inundated by Green Party members saying, we want to take over your party. They're doing their job. The volunteers are going to be abused by a bunch of people who cheated and want to get away with it. Mm-hmm. And then um, I can't be more frustrated by that type of thuggery. And then he just said, I think I'll end it there. And he walked away from the microphone. So he, uh, I, I noticed BB just this afternoon as being trying to placate and be very conciliatory. 
But the current premier had a lot to get off his chest today, and he did so. What, what are the longer-term repercussions? Is this one of those things that we in the media follow, which we have to, it's our job, but two or three months from now, four months from now, when we're talking about uh, housing, health care, crime, whatever it may be, uh, that this issue will be largely forgotten? Or do you think there are some longer, lingering, longer-term challenges before the party? Yeah, that's the thing you're constantly trying to measure. You get immersed in this stuff, and it's a very, very, very big deal last night. It was an astonishing development. And the, the whole um, machination that's alleged and that the, the party virtually confirmed, this kind of takeover of a party by a bunch of outsiders, I can't recall ever seeing that anywhere in Canada so it was a very unique situation. It ended with a bang. They ditched the just they ditched a woman, disqualified her campaign, and um, her supporters. To the uh, however many there are, however many members there are, I use the word members in quotes lately. Now mm-hmm. they're very upset. The only question is how many of them and how long this is going to last. Um, a lot of the NDP figures are saying, you know, just what you said, life is going to go on. We're going to get back to the issues. There's lots of other things that British Columbians are worrying about. At the end of the day, it's going to hurt the NDP undeniably because apart from who you were going to vote for in this contest, there's a, more than a few members who just they just don't like the looks of this. They don't think it, it goes well on the NDP to throw someone out of the race like this. And that's uh, it's going to cost them some members. The question is how many. I'm, they'll survive it, I guess, I'm sure. But um, it's just how big a wound it is and how many of these people flock to the Green Party or elsewhere and just ditch the NDP completely. Les, thank you for your time, my friend. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Jess. Canadian musician Jacob Hogard was sentenced to five years behind bars today in the sexual assault of an Ottawa woman, uh, an offence the presiding judge called a particularly degrading rape. In delivering her sentence in a downtown uh, Toronto courtroom today, Ontario Superior Court Justice Gillian Roberts said Hogarth's offence involved gratuitous degradation and gratuitous violence. Um, she went on to say that it is no exaggeration to say that the woman is no longer the same person she was before the attack. She was physically hurt. Far more significant was the psychological hurt. Uh, Joining me now to talk about uh, this particular case, but more importantly, the broader issue of sexual assault, is Angela Marie McDougall. She's the Executive Director of Battered Women's Support Services. Angela, I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. Um, I... I, uh, you know, I was just reading the story itself and then just looking at past stories about sexual assault. And I was looking at mostly American studies, but mm-hmm. rarely do we get convictions like this. That's accurate, right? Absolutely. Yeah, this is rare. Yeah, it's quite rare and uh, remarkable for a number of reasons. As you know, the, uh, I mean, we know that sexualized violence is really, it's endemic uh, in society, which means that it's, um, it happens uh, routinely. And this kind of case has come to light in part because of really a, a very uh, a survivor that was willing to expose herself to what is a very challenging criminal legal system and in order to achieve justice. So that it's, you know, sexual assault is not uh, it's very common um, the criminal, you know, taking it into the criminal system and, and actually having a court case that then results in a conviction. Uh, that then results in a sentence is extraordinarily rare. 
What uh, and in the U.S., uh, I think it uh, the, the conviction rate uh, is about zero point seven percent. So actually, getting a mm-hmm. case to be investigated, charges and a conviction is zero point seven percent. Just so the, yeah. the public have a context to it. In in Canada, it may be a little bit higher, but it, it is very yeah. very low. And, and the judge uh, uh, in this particular case said that she accepted the woman's evidence in its in entirety. Mm-hmm. What needs to change, Angela? Like, what kind of things do we need to do? Is it is a question of educating mm-hmm. police? Is it more resources? What what, where do we need to go as a society? Because those conviction numbers are just, well, they're appalling. They are appalling. And, and I think we've been on this journey for the last 40 years of attempting to, uh, you know, do uh, change, make that, that, that culture shift that within the culture broadly, but also within policing, also within, uh, the, you know, the criminal system actors such as Crown Counsel and judges. What's really remarkable about this case, and I did read the decision, um, uh, Justice Rob, um, Roberts, I think? Yes, Roberts? Jillian Roberts, yes. Yeah, thank you. She made a point in the third paragraph of the decision that, she, you know, that she asked counsel for their help, both counsel for their help in drafting an anti-myth and stereotype instruction to give to the jury at the beginning of the trial. So I think that, you know, that's uh, something quite remarkable and that what we've been up against all along have been some deep and profound myths and stereotypes about sexualized violence, sexual assault. And, uh, and we've seen some high pro- profile cases in recent years that, uh, that have quite frankly resembled this case that ended up in state charges or acquittals. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of work that is happening on the ground. Me too. Mm-hmm. Movement has been considerable in helping shift culture, uh, and of course, all of the you know the the survivors and frontline organizations across the country on both sides of the border that have been doing work for decades. Uh, in regards to um, the higher profile ones, uh, this is obviously one of them in the United States. You've had the Harvey Weinstein uh, variety of cases there with Mr. Weinstein and, and others as well. Um, are, are we making that structural change, though? I mean, uh, it's 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 all well and good for you and I to talk here, but do you think the structural <laughs> shift, attitudinal shift, perhaps with me too, it, we've headed in the right direction? But what do you think government needs to be doing next? So we're pushing government to do changes. And, and again, this has been a 40-year journey. And the structural changes are slow uh, because, the, you know, we're, these roots are quite deep. And, you know, one of the structural changes, I think, is this, uh, frankly, this, these instructions that the jury received this time, uh, that this judge did. That's one big shift. Uh, we haven't seen the changes yet. I know that British Columbia, for example, is attempting to write sexual assault policy that would then guide uh, police services within British Columbia. Right now, there isn't a policy, if you can imagine that, for how police should uh, conduct investigations. Uh, And so this will be baked into the professional standards, and and it's still in draft form, but the goal is that it will be written and baked into the professional standards, which then, you know, we'll be able to hold police accountable on the, you know, uh, in terms of how they do investigations. So these changes have been so slow, (laughs) <laughs> painfully mm-hmm. slow and for all the survivors that have uh, not achieved justice in the criminal system it's um, it's devastating for them and all of those victims and survivors who choose not to enter the system at all because they are recognizing that it really has limitations I mean the system was not set up to be able to navigate this kind of um, cultural social problem it was set up really around property and other kinds of criminal activity. And so this kind of violence is, um, 
it is, uh, it, you know, it's not really set up to be able to address it. And we've been working so hard tinkering with it, uh, both in terms of the attitudes of the system players, including police, uh, but also, um, you know, wanting to see the, the changes more broadly in the culture. And, and when we read the kinds of violence that, um, you know, this uh, recording artist did to this young woman, it's, um, you know, we've got a lot of, of, of problems still in the culture because what, you know, what he's, you know, what he has been reported to have done to her, we see all the time in our frontline work at Battle Women Support Services. Angela, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to this. All thank right. you. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.